Good morning, church. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. You'll, you'll catch on in a minute. I thought it was pretty common in America for one person to say good morning and someone to respond. But my name's Daniel. I am one of the, uh, the pastors here. You'll have to excuse my face. That last song always puts me in a heap of, heap of tears and a mess. Um, so uh, I am going to begin this morning by sharing a really cool story with you. We call this Celebrating the Win. If you've been with us over the last five to six weeks, you know we're in the book of Acts. And we, along with the book of Acts, have been in something called the One Campaign. And the One Campaign has challenged you to find that one person in your life that you are really, really sure God has placed there for this time, for this place, and for this season so that you could pray for them, so that you could reach out to them, so that you could share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And we challenged you a few weeks ago to, to write down that one person, bring it up and put it on at the foot of the cross. Well, this week, the first story of someone coming to faith in Jesus through the One campaign made its way to our ears. And it happened from a young lady who this past summer was doing an internship. And every day she was in an office with other interns. And over time, spiritual conversations started to happen with one young man in particular. This young man continued to express his doubts about Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the Christ, that, that Jesus is and should be the center of our universe and that we should give our lives and worship of him. Now, this young lady was very perceptive in what he was responding with to her about his doubts and objections. But she also recognized that according to a personality test she had taken, that they had very similar personalities. And she saw that the way she came to faith in Christ not too long ago was through objective, factual evidence. And she then began to take this tactic and this approach and give him evidence, give him books, give him material, answering his questions about if Jesus was who he said he was. The internship ended, and he went back to his school. She came back here, and on the morning of the One campaign, as she wrote his name down on the card after service, he contacted her that day, telling her that on that day, he had finally surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Oh, y'all got work to do. All right, yes. All right, so... The very first name is going to go up on the cross. Now, some of you are saying, okay, if that's what y'all are going to do is put the name on the cross, I ain't, I ain't going to tell you my stories, okay? Because we want you to tell us your stories. So we actually didn't put the whole name of this person. We'll even put a fake name. Or we'll just put a card up here if you don't want a name at all. So don't let the name, the possibility of the name being up here, distract you from or prevent you from telling us your stories. But if other of you have, have stories, please come and tell us your story as God continues to work in our midst, because each and every one of us has a one that God has, has placed in our life. And they may be here next door, or they, they may be far away. Okay? So wherever they are, you continue to work, you continue to pray, you continue to share the gospel, and let's see what God does with it. So before I get into the message, let me just pray over our ones, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Father, I thank you for this story. Father, we rejoice, for your scripture says there is great 
rejoicing in heaven when just one person turns from their sin and toward Jesus. God, we pray for our ones. We pray for those that you have put into our heart and into our lives where we are focusing our time and our efforts and our energies and our prayer. God, we pray that you would be merciful to our one, that you would be gracious to our one. Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. That God, that you would take out their heart of stone and that you would put in a heart of flesh. And that they, on bended knee, would fall down and worship King Jesus, being adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Father, may they experience the deposit of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of their inheritance. Father, do all of this for the glory of your name and your name alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, I have a question I want to begin with this morning. What immediately comes to your mind when you hear me say this word? Chemistry. I got one yay. How about horror? Come on, who in here has done everything they can to avoid having chemistry be any part of their curriculum while here at the university. Right? All right. Yes. Because it brings up some horrible feelings from you. Some, some horrible memories, maybe from high school, that this stuff just did not make sense in any way, shape, or form. For how many of you, besides Hoffa, was there some excitement when you heard the word chemistry? Right? All right, horror people, look to the people with the raised hands who are excited. They will help tutor you in chemistry whenever you need it. How many of you didn't go the science route, but love was the first thing that came into your mind? Because maybe right now you're asking, yeah, in the back, yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah, so. Because um, some of you are going to ask at some point in your life, do, do me and this other person have chemistry? Is there enough chemistry for us to continue going down this road of our relationship? Now, if you were to think about it and what all three of these words have in common, horror, excitement, and love, you would quickly realize that the common thing linking all three of these together is one word, reactions. All of these are reactions. Now, I don't remember a lot from my days in the chemistry classroom, but I do remember that we spent a lot of time on chemical reactions. And this is where I think the horror takes place, right? You take these two reactants, you put them together, then there's a yield, and left over is the product and the coefficients. I did not remember that at all. I had to cheat on the internet at Wikipedia yesterday to remember that because I have blocked it out of my mind. So... For those of you who have forgotten most of what you learned in chemistry, or those who picked a major that intentionally avoided this subject altogether, let me give you a refresher on the definition of chemical reactions. Okay, A chemical reaction is this, a process that involves rearrangement of the molecular or ionic structure of a substance as opposed to a change in physical form or a nuclear reaction. 
Now, let's be honest. It's definitions like these that make us hate chemistry, right? It's static. It's boring. It kind of just leads, it's academic. It just leaves us with a case of, I don't give a hoot, right? Like, I just don't care about that definition at all. It makes no uh, impact on my life whatsoever. But if you add a cute, super cool, middle school teacher and the right ingredients, chemistry can become super fun and make a chemical reaction that is fun and memorable. So rather than giving you just a boring, static definition of a chemical reaction, if your chemistry teacher would have just stood at the front of the room on that day and combined a little bit of hydrogen peroxide at 30% with a little bit of green food coloring and a solution of yeast and water, the chemistry of chemical reactions would have come alive and you would have been much more engaged in learning about these reactions. Yes. All right. Now, my real hope and goal is that this actually melts through the table and collapses during the middle of my message, okay? So this, if you've ever seen online, this is what they call elephant toothpaste, all right? So if you want to go figure out how to do this and have some fun around Halloween and make some things, there you go, elephant toothpaste. But that is an example of a chemical reaction. We took some, some things, some reactants, put them together, and we've yielded a completely different substance. So, my goal in doing this for you was to not really overwhelm you and impress you with how big you can make these, which you can, but it was to make this idea stick in your head that as you go out of here today, that as you latch on to this word reaction and try to remember things from this message, you're going to remember the green foam and you're going to be able to connect it to real life and hopefully this will stick somewhere inside of your brain and inside of your soul as you carry this message forward forward because here at Alathea Church, one of the things we value is the everyday church. You do not just come here on a Sunday for 90 minutes every week. You are the church every minute of every day, 168 hours every week. So hopefully this will help it stick inside your mind as you go out into the world. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 and see what are a lot of reactions that take place in this passage. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Okay, so here we get reaction number one, Peter and John. Now, these guys are going to the temple to pray, and it's 3 p.m., it's in the middle of the day, it's in the heat of the day. But we've got to ask ourselves, what reaction has taken place in their life that they are now devoted to going to the temple to prayer in the middle of the day? Because just three short years ago, these guys were fishermen. If you remember from Mark chapter 1, the first time we encounter Peter and John, each of them is with their brother, fishing. Peter's with Andrew. John is with James. And Jesus walks along the shore and he just looks him dead in the eye and says, hey, you, come follow me. Andrew and Peter drop what they're doing. They leave behind their family business. 
They leave behind their income. They leave behind those relational ties, and they just start following Jesus. It says Jesus then goes a little bit further down the shore, and he finds two more brothers, James and John. Hey, you! Come follow me. These guys didn't just have a fishing business. They had a fishing enterprise because they had hired help. They were the ones doing the easy work while the other guys were out doing the fishing. They had a fishing enterprise. They left it all behind. All the hopes and dreams that their parents had for them, they left it all behind to follow Jesus. And as their life reacted with Jesus, change began to happen. As they heard the words of Jesus and his teaching, they began to change. As they witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, their lives began to change. As they experienced the ascension of Jesus going up into the clouds, 40 days after his resurrection, their lives began to change. When the Holy Spirit came upon them and the tongues of fire were on their head and they began to speak in tongues, they began to change. So there's been this big process of change happening in their lives because of this reaction that takes place where they continually in their lives bump up against the power and presence of Jesus. And it is because of that they are at the temple on that day. Reaction number two can be found in verse two, where it says, A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this man is lame from birth. So his friends, in reaction to his need, carry him to the temple. Reaction number three in verse three says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So because of his condition, he reacts out of this condition and he asked these men to give him some money because he did not think he was capable of work and earning an income to provide for his daily needs. And in reaction to this, reaction number four, in verse number four, Peter directs his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Upon this, the man reacts to them, in verse five. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. To this, Peter now reacts with reaction number six, and Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. To this, God reacts. God reacts in this moment, in this situation, to the words of Peter, and God heals this man on the spot. And his body responds and his legs are made whole to where he can immediately stand up, walk, jump, leap around. Because it says he takes him by the right hand, he raises him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up in reaction, he, he stood and he began to walk. His immediate reaction was to enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And now the people react. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. 
And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, remember the first part of our definition of chemical reactions. One or more things coming together to rearrange the structure of a substance. How many lives were transformed on that day? We know the man's life was transformed that day. But the other people who saw him, how many lives were transformed that when the people of God and the power of God came to where there was a desperate need. That need was met and lives were changed and transformed. And so what we have seen take place is that Jesus came together with Peter and John. John and Peter came together with the Holy Spirit. The man came in contact with Peter and John and the power of God. The man came in contact with the crowds and all were amazed. The structure of the man's feet had been rearranged and the structure of the crowd's attitude toward God and the gospel had now been rearranged as well. These massive reactions are taking place in the lives of heart in the lives and hearts of people in this moment. Now before we move forward and start to apply this to our own hearts and to our own lives, there's a series of questions I want you to ponder and consider. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you there's, a, there's multiple choice. And there's four possibilities. I want, you, I want you to go ahead and know. There's yes, no, I don't know, I'm not sure. The last two you might consider to be the same, but you might have a little bit of variance in there. So yes is a possibility, no is a possibility, I don't know, and I'm not sure. Ask yourself, answer this question. Do you believe that God has the power to transform the lives of those around you. Do you believe that God is willing to use His power to set people free who are in bondage Physically, spiritually, relationally, and emotionally. Can you honestly say you want to see the power of God unleashed into those areas of people's lives around you? If you answered yes to those three questions, then let me ask you one more. What are you willing to give in order to see God's power transform someone's life? What are you personally willing to give in order to see God's power transform someone's life? What I'm about to say to you next 
does not come with a prosperity gospel promise. And guarantee that if you only have enough faith and give enough money, that God will bless you beyond your wildest dreams and do every single thing that you ask Him to do. Our God is not the genie in a lamp. If you've watched Aladdin recently, Will Smith, genie, that's not how it works. But, here's what I know. From personal experience, from hundreds of stories that I've heard, through the words of Scripture, which we believe to be the divine, inspired, and errant Word of God, over and over and over, throughout this collection of 66 books, throughout the centuries of the testimonies of the church, there is a consistent pattern seen throughout Scripture that attests to the nature of God and how He responds to our actions to how we decide to live and move and breathe in the world with the sole purpose of seeing His name glorified above our own. About putting Him at the center of our universe. About having our lives revolve around Him and His purposes and His promises. Just to give you a few examples of Scripture, and I've tried to make this broad to, to kind of expand our mind a little bit to where I'm going to take this in the last part of the message, is, is, is look at reaction number one. If I was to ask you up here, can you think of a story where you see someone give something and God do a miracle in return? The, the immediate place you might probably go is to the little boy with the fish and loaves in John chapter 6, 1 through 15. Now, Jesus has been out healing people. Jesus has been out preaching and teaching. And the Scriptures tell us that there are 5,000 men in account that day. Now, scholars tell us if you add the women and children with that, there's about 20,000 people following Jesus on this day. And what I can't figure out about the story is if they are just so uh, caught up in what Jesus is doing that, that, they, that they, they forgot to bring lunch, Right? And it's like, how, how does everybody forget to bring lunch? Because right now, I can promise you, some of you have already thought about lunch at least four times in this message, right? You, you, you want to know where you want to go. This is something that we, we don't forget lunch, okay? So now there's 20,000 people, and Jesus is like, go, you, you guys, go feed the people. The new disciples, go feed the people because they brought no food. Except for one little boy. Out of 20,000 people, there is one boy who thought to bring lunch because he knew that Jesus could get a little long-winded sometimes, okay? So he's out there. He's got his fish. He's got his loaves. He brings it to Jesus. Jesus multiplies the fish and loaves to where everyone is like belly full on Thanksgiving, right? That, that kind of full is what everybody had on that day, and there are baskets of food left over. That's an easy one. That little boy gave to Jesus, and Jesus multiplied it abundantly. Now, let me just say, that is a pattern of how God works in our lives and throughout the world when we simply give Him what we have. 
But it's not just in, in the giving of material things. Because I also thought about Gideon. Now, some of you were raised on the VeggieTales version of Gideon, okay? Yeah, and some of you are like, VeggieTales, what is that? Yeah, yeah, okay. Anyway, <laughs> to shorten up this story uh, really, really quickly, but yeah, you can go read it in Judges 6 and 7. There was this guy named Gideon, and the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. He says, hey, mighty warrior of God. And Gideon's like, who? Who are you talking about? He said, look, like you might be the angel of God, but uh, apparently the communication uh, got crossed up here because I am from the most pitiful tribe in Israel. And of the most pitiful tribe, I come from the most pitiful clan of all of Israel. And from the most pitiful clan of all of Israel, I am the most pitiful person in my family. So there is no way you are calling me the mighty warrior of God and you are calling me to now lead the nation of Israel against our enemies. But just in case you are, I got this little fleece over here. And I'm going to throw it on the ground. If the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, I'll know you're calling me. Wakes up the next morning, boom. All right. That was a cool trick, angel of the Lord. But let's see if you can reverse it. Next morning, boom. All right, I'm in on this thing. Now, you got to think about this. What God is calling Gideon to give is leadership. So Gideon's now confident. There's 30,000 people around, and God says, mm, that's just too many. So through the pairing off of some people, he whittles the crowd down from 30,000 to 300. And Gideon's like, mm, I don't know about this. Me and 300 guys are going to go attack the enemies of God and wipe them out. God said, yes, but not only that, like you aren't even going to use a sword. You're going to take a torch and a clay pot. And this is how you are going to defeat the enemies of God. But in order for this to happen, Gideon had to be willing to give leadership into this situation among these men. But I want you to notice, I mean, he had a very weak faith. He kept putting God to the test. But God is incredibly gracious and merciful to Gideon in his very weak faith. But it was just enough faith that God was the object of his faith that when he did follow through, God wipes out the enemies of Israel. Because Gideon was, to, was willing to provide even the smallest ounce of leadership to put his faith in God. Think about the story of Jonah. Another VeggieTales classic. Right? <laughs> Jonah and the big fish. All right. I know some of you were raised on a whale. I was. The Bible doesn't say whale. It just says big fish. All right? But anyway, here's the point of the story. God said, Jonah... I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach to those people to repent. Jonah's like, God, I know you are loving. I know you are merciful. I know you are gracious, but I hate those people. I am not going to tell them about how good you are and how wonderful you are and how much salvation you offer them. No way, no how. I'm going on a boat the opposite way. Storm happens. Everybody figures out. Jonah's the cause of the storm. Jumps in the water, swallowed by the fish. 
Jonah gets tired of being in the belly of the fish, and he goes, all right, God, I will repent. I will go. I, I, I will repent. I will tell those people to go repent very begrudgingly. This is not what I want to do at all, because here's what I know, God. I know you're good. I know you are going to save these people, and I do not want to see them saved. What happens? Jonah goes. He says, hey, you Ninevites, you fish slappers, right? You remember the story from Gideon? Veggie tales? Yeah, everybody knows. Fish slappers. All right. Some of you are like, well, I got to go watch it. This is really good. So, all right. So he goes, the, goes to fish slappers, repent. A hundred thousand people, the entire city repents and turns to Jesus, I mean, turns to God. And Jonah is like, I knew it. I knew that's what you were going to do. And he gets all mad again, right? He gets mad at the plant and so on and so forth. But, now here's, so here's the rebellious guy, the guy who's really not wanting to do anything that God tells him to do, and he's rebellious the whole time. But when he is faithful, God is also faithful. And God is more faithful than Jonah was. Another reaction that we see. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I picked this one on purpose because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel in the book of Daniel, were the best and brightest that Israel had to offer. Now, as an Auburn grad, it really hurts me to lay this compliment on you guys. Because you are the best and brightest anywhere around. Your number seven university, right? I don't know that Auburn even made the list, all right? They didn't? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they didn't. <laughs> but there was a poll recently. They, the students there are the happiest students in all of, in, in all of college, whatever, whatever that means, all right? So um, I, I tell people all the time, you know, if you guys know, we've been here over a year. We moved here from, from Seattle, like, like, I'm always amazed at the brain power that is in this room. And like, even in my, even in my gospel community, like, 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 like my gospel community has someone getting a PhD in, I think it's electrical engineering and computer science. There's someone getting a, a PhD and they're doing like CRISPR gene editing stuff. I, I, have a, I have a trauma surgeon. I have a lawyer at the DA's office. I have an architect. I have a doctor with specializing in pediatric gastrointestinal stuff. And like, like, that's just part of my group, okay? Like, you guys are the best and brightest that our country has to offer. And in the same way, your faith will be tested in the workplace among the institutions of this world because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And there came a day in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that Nebuchadnezzar said, Hey, everybody has to worship me. And if you don't, you die. Those three guys said, Dude, we don't care what you say. We ain't bowing down. We ain't worshiping you because you ain't Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar says, Okay, like you're great, you're bright, you're smart. But you broke the rules, so you're going to get thrown into the fire. Well, they get thrown into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar and all his men look down there, and guess what? They see four men in the fire. Now, I think you can figure out who that fourth guy is. Not a hair on their head was singed. 
their clothes weren't burned at all. And when they came up out of that fire, and they were willing to give their lives, they were willing to give their bodies, they were willing to give their testimonies over for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Nebuchadnezzar bowed down and said, you guys worship the real God. Some of you are going to be faced with moments like that in your career. I pray that you will be faithful like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you will stand up for Jesus Christ knowing that he may put you through the test. And you may not come out as clean as those three young men. But God will be incredibly faithful to you if you will stand for Jesus when someone tells you not to. Today, we see Peter and John. Their reaction was, hey, we don't have any money, but what we have, we're going to give you. Now, I've made one attempt through my science experiment to have this stick in your head. I'm going to make a second attempt, which is a little more daring than the first attempt. One, because it's going to show my age, and number two, I'm going to sing for a second, which I can't do it at all in any way, shape, or form. The first sermon I ever preached here, I asked, or I gave an example, and I used boys to men as the example. I couldn't figure out why all the people standing at the back were laughing at me, who were 30 and above. And none of the people where you're sitting knew what I was talking about, because you didn't know who boys to men was. But hopefully, you know who the Rolling Stones are. Yes? Do you know who the Rolling Stones are? Okay. Thank you, Jesus. All right? <laughs> now, there's a very famous song by the Rolling Stones with a very famous title and a very catchy lyric. And it goes like this. You can't always get what you want, right? How many of you have heard this song, right? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little corporate singing for a minute, all right? We're going to say it three times, all right? Now, after three times, I'm going to give you the punchline, but you've got to help me out, all right? So somebody with a little rhythm, help me out. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But you can Always give what you've got. Thank you. Thank you. Come on now. That, that is a key line I want you to take with you today. This is a universally true principle. You can't always get what you want. But for the rest of your life, you can always give what you've got. So now, now the question becomes, what is it that we have? And what are the principles by which God expects us to give? So I'm going to briefly give you the four principles of giving in Scripture as they come to us from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Paul says, if you are a follower of Jesus, here are the principles of giving by which you should live your life. You should give joyfully regularly, generously, and sacrificially. The pattern of our lives 
should be that we give joyfully, regularly, generously, and sacrificially. Now, you're going to have to ask yourself if you see that pattern in your life. If not, you need to understand this is God's expectation of you. So this is one of those things that if you were to ask yourself, if I was to say, Daniel Espy, what is God's expectation of me when it comes to giving? I would say, according to the scriptures, that I would give joyfully, regularly, generously, and sacrificially. If you were to insert your name, what does God require of me, and put your name there, these are the four things that you would answer. So if you see these things in your life, great, awesome, that's how it should be. If you see yourself short in any of these areas, you need to write them down and you need to make it a a, a priority to begin to move in this direction and give along the lines of these principles, okay? If you will give in this way, you will bring great glory to God. And I promise you, you will see him move in incredible ways in your life and in the lives of others. Because it is the nature of God to respond to his people when they give in this way. Now, all this talk about giving usually gets only associated with that of money, with that of finances. But it is not just of our finances that God expects us to give. You, being around here for a while, you may have heard us use the term, or if you've been in church for a while, what it means to be a 3T Christian. A 3T Christian has three resources at his disposal. Time, talent, and treasure. So we take the principles of giving, and we apply them to the resources that we have. Now remember, we own nothing, okay? One of the things that we get really confused about in life is that we actually think we own things, all right? When God says, everything is mine, all right? So there's really only one owner of all things, and that is God. You and I are described as stewards. That's all we are. We are stewards of resources. So we don't actually own anything. Everything we have has been given to us by God to be used for His glory and for His name. And the three things that we are to use that we see in Scripture are our time, talent, and treasure. Now, I know the first objection to time is going to be this, but I'm so busy. How many times have you said that in the last week? How many times do you plan on saying that in the coming week? Can I just be honest with you for a moment? That is about the most BS excuse that we just offer to people that everyone accepts. I'm just so busy. Yeah, you're doing a lot of things. But did you know science actually contradicts this statement of being busy? Did you know that science has, in all these studies, do you know that right now you, you, me, all of us, we have more indiscriminate time at our disposal than any other society that has ever lived throughout all of human history. We have more free time than anyone that has ever lived on this planet. 
and Netflix and YouTube prove it. Right? I mean, let's, just be, let's just be really honest about this. We are busy. We fill our stuff up. We fill our time up. But are we really prioritizing our time? Or is it because we procrastinated and put off the things that were important? Are we really as busy as we say we are? Because I'll just be honest, we accept that excuse really readily. And we give that excuse really freely. Not having really processed that we have more free time than any other generation that's ever lived. So along with that, along with our time, we also have talents. The reason I gave those examples of words and leadership is the talents in this room are immense and enormous. They are wide. They are varying. They cover the gamut. We are the body of Christ. We are built together as a body with all of these incredible ta talents. God does not expect you to go and be a preacher if, if you do not have the gift of preaching and teaching and speaking or feel called to. But if, if you are great at computer science and computer engineering, God wants you to use those talents for the glory of God in every way, shape, or form imaginable. If it's as a doctor, if it's as a lawyer, if it's as a school teacher, if it's in the business world, whatever it is, use that talent for the glory of God. This idea of sacred and secular does not exist in the Bible when it comes to our work. When I was studying in Israel one summer, they told we went to a monastery and there was one monk there who devoted his entire life, entire life, to carving a staircase out of a mountain so that his other fellow monks would have an easier path to which to get food and water. Now let's just be honest. If you knew that's what you were going to be doing for the next 50 years of your life, that every morning you were going to get up and with your talents, with your sculpting skills, you were going to get there with a hammer and chisel and you were going to carve into the side of a mountain a simple stair-step structure, you would be, ah, this is meaningless, this is purposeless, why am I doing this at all? And that monk, as a labor of love, loving his neighbor as himself, devoted his entire life to the loving of other people. And you know the difference in that monk and us? Is that, see, when we go to school, when we go to work, when we get into relationships, we are looking to, to draw meaning out of this. People are like, well, I'm looking for meaning in my work. I'm looking for purpose in my work. If you do that, you, you, you have totally subverted and turned upside down the biblical view of work. You do not derive meaning from work. You bring meaning to work. Your work is a gift from God, the gift of God to you to go out into the world, to produce, to interact with other people, and to see the lives of those around you changed. If you never want to get in this deep depression at work, then bring meaning to work. How many of you have ever thought, man, I can't wait for the weekend? To get here. After work, man, I, I can't wait for the weekend. You're working for the weekend. If you do that, you are subverting the biblical model. We don't work so that we can rest. We rest so we can work. You look at the creation ordinance. God gave us a day of rest. Why? So we could work. 
so that we could be productive, so that we could be fruitful and multiply, so that we could take our work into the world and have an incredible impact on the lives of those around us. Your greatest opportunities to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of your friends and family will be at your work. Take those talents into the world. Treasure is pretty simple. God says that you are to share your treasure with the church to where you receive teaching. You are to share your treasure with those who are in need. You are to help carry other people's burdens. You should have it as a priority in your life to give to the church and to give to those who are in need, to widows and orphans. If you need any help doing that, I am. I love budgets. I love helping. I love making it painful for you to spend money. So if you would like to, uh, to, to learn that, but then have a joy that's overflowing, that's amazing and wonderful, I, can, I would love to help you teach how to give. Because there is something incredible about being generous. Even in the years we were broke and had $10 a month spending money for years at a time, we gave 10% to the church and we had a 5% slush fund, a blessing fund we called it. So that anytime anyone said, I'm in need, whatever was in that fund, we just gave it. We never had to think about it. We didn't have to do it. And let me tell you, you want to experience an incredible feeling of joy? Give generously and just know that nothing that you can give to people whenever they need it. And what's funny, at the end of the year, even when if there's money left over, we just sit down with our kids at Christmas and we open up those catalogs from around the world and we give them each just hundreds. Sometimes we've done, it's been thousands of dollars now because this fund is built up. How do you guys want to give? How do you want to bless people who you're never going to know, who you know this money is going to go and they're going to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's an incredible pattern to set into our lives. So God wants us to give out of these principles our time, talent, and treasure. But also with this, we give the gospel. Now we can summarize the gospel in many different ways. But I'm going to take one verse because I know you've heard this one. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. If I had time, I would talk about joy. But I'm just going to say, when you walk out into the world today, there are three things that combined with your resources you can offer the people around you. Faith, hope, and love. The word faith here in the Bible is the Greek word pistuo, and it's the same word for faith and trust. So we have two different words. It's one word. In the Bible, people need to put, people are putting their faith in something. But almost everyone is putting their faith on shaky ground. Because if you're putting your faith on something besides Jesus, you are putting it on shaky ground. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7, the close of the Sermon on the Mount. The guy who builds his life on the sand, the guy who builds his life on the rock. People are putting their trust in their retirement accounts. You're putting your trust that that degree is actually going to get you a job. That the name above your name, that University of Florida, is going to carry some weight and get you a job and get you a good salary. You're putting your faith in an economic system, hoping it doesn't blow up. You have no guarantee of any of those things. Societies have collapsed and crumbled throughout all of human history. 
Jesus has never failed. As soon as the sun, as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow and be hot today, at least here in Florida, you can offer faith. You can offer the way you are sitting in your chair right now. All of you are fully rested in your chairs. Some of you are more rested than others. Head bobbing. I get it. I see it. All right. You're fully rested. You're completely trusting this chair to hold you up. That's the same faith and trust we put in Jesus. You can offer that to people. People need that kind of faith. But not only do they need that kind of faith, that kind of sure foundation, people need hope. And people are hoping in a lot of things. You're hoping in that degree. You're hoping in that job. You're hoping one day the person you marry doesn't go crazy 10 years into it and you're left with a mess. Hey, you laugh now. I've been a pastor for a long time. All that is, I mean, it's hope. You have no guarantee they're not going to go nuts. You have no guarantee your children are, are, are going to be obedient and follow you and not be rebellious and cause, cause you a ton of heartache and pain. You have no guarantee of any of that. But see, as followers of Jesus, we have this sure hope. Look at what it says in Hebrews 6.19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. What you have in Jesus is, is greater hope than anything. And the question is, do the people around you hear you express this hope? Or do you gripe and complain just as much as they do? There's a reason that verse in Philippians 2, 4 rubs me the wrong way. Do everything without arguing or complaining. I hate that verse. And now that you know it, you're going to hate it too. Everything without arguing and complaining. Mm -hmm. Really, Jesus? Mm -hmm. You sure? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything without arguing and complaining. Because you have hope, real hope. And the last is love. Faith, hope, the greatest of these is love. Listen. As we come down to the very end of this, I would encourage you to memorize these two verses, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. You, you, you need these into your mind and into your heart. The Bible's command to us, what does God require of us? Be imitators of God as beloved children. So see, from our identity as children, we imitate God. And how do we do that? We walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now you can pretty much tell he's talking about the crucifixion. The standard by which we are to live our lives is to imitate Jesus and to live our lives as a sacrificial offering to other people. This is repeated in Scripture. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know the problem with the living sacrifice? It loves to get up off the altar of sacrifice. Right? It hurts. I'm going to get off for a while. Okay, I'll get back on. Ouch! I'm going to get off again. No, you got to get back on there. A living sacrifice. Being a sacrifice 
hurt. But you know what? It's an amazing testimony to the world. When you and I follow Jesus and live lives of sacrificial love. And since we began with chemical equations, we're going to end with a God equation. If from this you will remember this equation, you will see God move in powerful ways throughout your life. If you remember that, one, we have the nature of God. And as one of the reactants, if we combine the nature of God with our resources, our time, talent, and treasure, and then we then add to that the gospel, joy, faith, hope, and love, it will yield an explosion of grace in our lives and the lives of those around us. Our challenge, my challenge to you is to go out and live with this in mind this week. Knowing who God is. Taking account of the resources that He has given you. Holding on to the truth of the gospel. And carry that everywhere you go into the hearts and lives of people. Proclaiming, demonstrating, word and deed. And I so look forward to. I don't, I don't hope in a trivial way, but in a real way, I look forward to knowing that God is going to release explosions of grace in your life as you carry the name of Jesus into the classroom, into the workplace, and wherever you set your foot in the coming weeks, months, and years until he finally calls you home. I'll go ahead and invite the band back up. We are about to enter into a time of communion. Communion is a time where um, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We remember his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. Kyle, if you would, just put Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Uh, up on the screen. And as they get set up, just meditate on this verse because it's from the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, that we respond in this way. And so seek how you might respond in this way as an offering of sacrificial love. One side note, there's bread with gluten, there's bread without gluten. If you take bread with gluten, which is the soft, fluffy stuff that tastes good, (laughs) don't dip it into the cup where the gluten-free bread is, please, because we have people with very very serious allergies here that we do not want to cause a reaction with. All right? That's your medical side note for the day. All right? So please, look at this verse, sing with us, and worship King Jesus.